Insert gay card. I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Wish I knew how queens isn't. I'm gay. You can't love yourself. How in the hell you gonna love somebody else? Can I get an amen? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Gay card revoked. Hi, I'm Robbie Roselle. And I'm Rob Schneider. And, and this, this is Gay Card, Gay Card Revoked. That was great. Somewhat Zoom in unison, is, kind of an echo. Zoom is the worst. You did not have a stroke. We just don't have this down to a science yet. That's you really where we're at. Technology is not a science, uh, and neither are masks, apparently. But so. war. War is a science. What? For our, <laughs> for our, for our skip song Pippin listeners, <laughs> war is a science. Track number four, it's still good. Don't throw oh, it away. I don't skip that song. Do you skip that song? Uh, I don't skip that song. I know people that do. No, that's a great song. No, I know people who do. I am not one of them. I no. will skip Morning Glow, but there. Oh still. no, not on the. Oh revival. no! Oh no! Oh no! Oh, is that, is that a thumbs up or a thumbs up. down? Our is guest a... is clutching every pearl. Anyway. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Not Morning Glow. Please forgive me. Not Morning Glow. Uh, the song that they sing. It's Pippin and Catherine. Love oh, song. Love song. Love song. Sorry. Yeah, please forgive it. me. No, please. I do like Morning Glow. Morning Sorry. Glow. Forgive me. Forgive me. It's been a long day. It's been a long Rob week. Schneider. I'm sorry. I'm how, sorry. What, what, how was your week? How was everything? My week is fantastic. We're chugging along here. I'm Did very excited. Did you reread The Velvet Rage? No. Uh, no, because I tried to read it and you came over to my house and slapped it out of my hand. I said, and you're then not for, in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then used it for kindling wood. But it's okay. The adversity you threw at me, I opened up an art gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's beautiful. As, so, as the uh, book says. But we had a great, that was a great episode. It was. and we, I loved we, so, talking to Logan. Yes. It was great. Yes. Was great. How was hey? How was your week? You got some exciting things happening. I oh, know. Jesus, today was the longest day of my life. Here's the thing, friends. Um, we're we're recording. Um, it's ten o'clock on Thursday night. Uh, this comes out tomorrow. Um, so God bless Rob for the editing job he's about to not do. Um, <laughs> Gonna throw in a theme song and go to bed. <laughs> Slap it! Off it goes. Um, but today was the release of Nick Cordero's album, uh, which has been like, it's been keeping me very busy. Uh, and uh, it's the number one album in America right now, um, yeah. which is wonderful, but sucks because he's not here. And um, I posted it this earlier, but um, the only other time that I've designed a number one uh, record was when the Broadway for Orlando with The World Needs Now is Love single came out. Um, and both of those uh, were both of those albums were just born out of like senseless, uh, unnecessary tragedy, and, and so it's very bittersweet. And where can we buy the album? Oh, uh, truly anywhere. Uh, BroadwayRecords.com/slash/Nick is like gives you every possible place you can get it, and it's really and, good. And am I correct that a portion of the proceeds, if not all the proceeds, all are going? Them. All of them are going to his family. To Amanda uh, Klutz, his wife or widow, uh, and his uh, one-year-old son, Elvis. Great. Well, I'm going to go buy mine as soon as we get done with this, and I encourage everybody to do the same. Yeah. Hey, listen, there's a moment on it. He sings You Matter to Me with Drew Gayling, and Zach Braff appears halfway through and just goes, dear baby, I hope someday. (laughs) And it's one of the funniest things that I've ever heard. 
Good. What, what a great way to remember him. I hear the album Absolutely. is very celebratory, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah, so. it really is. It was never intended. It was ju- just intended to be a reference recording while they, like, worked out the show some more so they could tour it. And it just has become this really beautiful celebration of his life. So that's really great. Okay, great. But anyway. So, yeah, go buy it. Go buy it. So from and dark things to darker things. Dark things to darker things. What are we watching today? We are watching the, the Alfred Hitchcock film, Rope which I love. And so I said to you, why don't we do Rope? And you jumped at it. I am a huge Uh, Hitchcock fan. I saw I, I am ex- yeah, oh yes 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 you yes. look like him Th- thank Just you hold on behind. if I can turn <laughs> if I can turn the profile I used to be able to do an impression of him maybe it'll come Wait, back I don't really? know um <laughs> hold on hold on I'm gonna try oh, hold on. Good. <clears throat> good evening how was that is that a yes <laughs> no that was very funny yeah okay great um, we're trying oh oh Eric <laughs> is giving me a sideways so that's like a work yeah. on it work on it and of course every every one of our podcasts has a drink I can do Jimmy Stewart. Oh, Mary, Mary. That's Mary, all I've got. Mary. 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 They're going to take you to jail, Brandon. <laughs> How was that? Is that good? Yeah. Mary, good. Mary, Mary, you're a librarian. <laughs> oh. That's, that's did, you see the, did you see the, the, we're getting off topic, but the music band Marquis went up today. Uh, no, they no, no, no. the entire front of house. <laughs> I've been quarantined since March. I don't know. Are there trees still? There's photos. Is there a sky? Okay, great. So um, we have. I remember Sky. I remember, he's going to sing. Everybody, we don't have the rights. Um, so this it is yes, Louisic. It's Alfred Hitchcock's 1948 film Rope, mm-hmm. um, which is absolutely every, fantastic. Every one of our episodes has a uh, drink, a cocktail, yes. of some sort, and this one is no exception. We're drinking champagne. Pure and simple. Champagne. Yeah. They drink it throughout the movie. Why shouldn't you drink it as well? And if you it's don't a celebration. feel it's a celebration. It's a bizarre yeah. celebration. And if you don't feel like champagne, don't worry. They also serve ice cream Sunday. So go ahead. Make yourself an ice cream Sunday. Yeah. Summer's ending. You know what? Go on uh seamless, get some cold stone delivered. Can and you, if can... you think I have not done that, you are wrong. Can you get cold stone delivered? You fucking bet your ass you can. So so why don't you and Eric finish the episode and, and I'll be back? Great. So I'm, I'm going to go bring in our guests. I'm going to go. I'm going to go on to, to Grubhub if that's okay, and see how many parts of cookies and cream we can bring. Cake, strawberry surprise, or why is there an or? or? You know, can it just be things. and? I'm getting this and this and this Wait, and. I'm so sorry. Your baker's wife was very moving. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'll. I. I. You don't need to see any more. I'm assuming. So okay. I know the drill. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I don't need your ballot. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to bring in our guest. Because I've known him for so many years. I'm so thrilled. Um, he's one of my oldest and dearest friends. And I don't get to see him enough because of the core. Um, so I'm thrilled to stare at him through the Zoom screen. Uh, he is a celebrated playwright. Um, and actually, the, one, of the, one of the best things that I've seen by a, an emerging writer in a long time was a reading of his uh, play called Sparkler. Um, and Sparkler? Sparkler. Rob, let me tell you a little bit. Sparkler is, uh, I'm going to have Eric tell you like the sort of plot of it. It was fucking great. The cast, that it's, for, it's like a four-hander. It was Chrissy Altamare, Eric Bergen, Alan Cumming, and Garrett Clayton. And we were in the hottest possible room that Pearl Studios has. Um, I'm pretty sure they decided to just crank the heat all the way and turn it into like hot yoga 
before I beat him and Zell to sing through. I don't even know. Um, And I still was just mesmerized by the writing of uh, my friend. I'm going to bring him in. This is Eric Tampting. Hi, Eric. Oh, hello, fella. How are you? Well, I'm doing just fine. How are you? (laughs) I'm so good. I'm so thrilled that you're doing this episode. Oh, I'm really excited that you asked me to do this episode. Uh, Robbie texted me and and asked me, how would you feel about Alfred Hitchcock's rope? Just like a general question. And my answer was, well, I just hosted a watch party for it like three days ago. Perfection. Perfection. Like the timing was just so immaculately perfect. Um, Because you have a Facebook group dedicated to Hitchcock. I do. I started it at the beginning of um, the COVID quarantine. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a, an elitist sort of thing. We have like 163 members. Um, well, I don't want there to be like 2,000 people to reign over. I, I, I'm well, just not into that. Is we there an application? We talked about it on this podcast of tens of listeners. <laughs> you, uh, you can apply to be admitted into it, and um, I will determine whether or not I want you in it. Eric, uh, oh, just Eric, just give me your Venmo. I'll pay to get in. I have no shame. It's, oh no, come on in, seriously. But the, but like I often get requests from people in Indonesia who joined <laughs> Facebook two hours ago. Like, <laughs> you know, you you you've gotta you gotta be careful with that stuff because um, there are groups that just allow anybody in, and so yeah. it's thousands and thousands of people, and maybe like 10% of them are actually there for the reason that sure. the group exists. And so I keep mine pretty heavily curated. Eric, when did you first discover Alfred Hitchcock? When I was eight years old. What film? It was Psycho, and my parents were extremely lenient with me when it came to films, and I had seen all kinds of like Italian gore and some serious fucked up shit. But the one film that my father refused to rent me at the video store was Psycho. He just absolutely would not do it. And I, I, I found, so it became this mystery. What is this film? Yeah. What is this film? And so we made a deal um, one summer. It was the um, summer that I turned nine. Um, 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, it was exactly 10 years ago. And, makes sense, makes sense. Um, and we made a deal that if I aced my math tutoring, and I was wretched at math, math and I have never been friends, but if I did well with my math tutoring that summer, then he would rent Psycho for me. So I scored aces in that shit. I did math like... Einstein never dreamed he could. (laughs) And then on the last day of tutoring, my tutor said to my father, I have never seen such improvement from a student before in my entire career as a teacher. And I said, where are we going, dad? And he said, video one. And so (laughs) so we went off and rented Psycho. I sat in the living room at three o'clock on a summer afternoon on my knees in front of the TV, with sun blazing through the windows, watching this film for the first time. And that was it. And um, it wasn't very long after that that I discovered Sweeney Todd uh, when I was nine. And, and that just sent me like on a spiral. 
So by the time I was 10, I was like a Hitchcock, <laughs> um, like expert. Oh, I love that. And that was during the time when they were um, releasing, like MCA Universal had bought all of the Paramount yeah. films. And so they were releasing them on VHS for the very first time ever. And then not soon long, not very long after that, all of the um, David O. Selznick films had been picked up by an adjacent of Fox video called Key Video. Mm -hmm. And so that brought us to Rebecca and Lifeboat and the parodying case, um, et cetera, and so forth. And so there was this renaissance of Hitchcock that was just bombarding my life. Every time I turned around, there was another film that could be purchased. So I'm like this 12-year-old with 47 Alfred Hitchcock films. I was special and different. Uh, listen, you're talking, you're preaching to the choir. Um, what is your favorite Hitchcock film? You know, that's really hard because it changes season by season. Mm. Um, everyone wants everyone's favorite Hitchcock film to either be North by Northwest, Psycho, or The Birds. Uh -huh. And North by Northwest is my least favorite Hitchcock film. Agreed. Um, I Agreed. think that it is a sellout big blockbuster commercial film that helped him make the money he needed to film Psycho. Mm -hmm. And so he had to like pull out all the stops for that. Um, it's, it's kind of a toss up between Rope and Rear Window. And- uh, I love Rear Window. And, and, and then I get really, really kind of janky because I love Topaz. Topaz and is a good one. Yes, Topaz is fantastic. But five people have seen it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's a remarkable, wonderful spy film that that harkens back to his British years when yes. they were all spy movies. And I I absolutely adore it. I love Torn Curtain too. I love I love a lot of the ones that are like the little puppies that have been left at the kennel. Uh, my favorite Frenzy. Do you like Frenzy? I do like Frenzy. It's very sloppy. But I like yeah, it. Yeah. It's a, it's a sloppy frenzy. Sloppy it is frenzy. a sloppy frenzy. But I do adore her family plot. Oh, well, Barbara Harris, what more could you want? Yeah, and Karen Black and William Devane. And yes. It's um, a stellar cast, and everyone is having such a good time. And it really feels like an inauguration of all of Hitchcock's trademarks slammed together into this two-hour... Um, Cape Crusade, except uh, like you know, diamond stealing, yeah. psychic phoniness, et cetera, and so forth. And when Barbara Harris sits down on the stairs at the end of the film and winks at the camera, that is Hitchcock saying goodbye. You know, and and it's like it's so touching that moment. And that it was Barbara Harris, and she was blonde. She was the last Hitchcock blonde. And she was so completely unbound to the typical icy um, Madeline Carroll, Grace Kelly, um, et cetera, and so forth. Um, she was wacky and zany and punky. And I, I'm really glad that she's the one who took, who took it home. Agreed. And it's, it's, you're right. That ending is an absolute great way of him saying goodbye to his audiences. It's, it's, it's so lovely. Robbie, what about you? Do you have a favorite Hitchcock? I, I do. I love Rear Window. Mm. I see it every chance I get. Um, a couple of years ago, they showed it in Central Park. Um, oh. 
Village East Cinemas likes to every October, except this one. Uh, they love to show, uh, they call it Hitchcocktober um, and show Hitchcock films every week. Uh, Metrograph, I saw a dial for murder in um, 3D there. And was, he didn't call me. I know. He didn't tell well, me. Well, what's so weird is Eric is the first person, uh, Eric showed me my first uh, Hitchcock film. Which was Rebecca, which I love. And that was back when the Rebecca Marquis were up oh, right, at the, the theater. Oh. Um, when it was actually happening. <laughs> and there was much celebration in my heart because I love that musical. That musical is a masterpiece. And so for what occurred to have occurred is still gut-wrenching to me because it's never going to come now. And oh. but in honor of the musical coming i felt it really necessary that robbie see the source material absolutely yeah and did you, and you enjoyed it right robbie i it's one of my again one of my favorite films yeah and uh actually eric and i uh i was coming here to find a place to live um because i was going to move to the city and so he and i shared a hotel for a week and saw a shit ton of theater um we saw other desert cities and that glass menagerie revival with Sherry Jones. Yeah. And uh, you camped Darren outside Chris. to see Derek Chris, uh, Darren Chris in uh, how to succeed. It was like fantastic. But the highlight of it was seeing uh, Rebecca uh, on your laptop. Yeah. Sitting, sitting on, in a Fairfield um, Inn. sitting on Robbie's bed in the hotel room. What a and, and we just decided let's just, let's just not do shit tonight. Let's just stay in. Yeah, and because it was a whirlwind week mm. where we were constantly doing something, and even if I wasn't doing something, Robbie always was. Robbie, sure. was, Robbie is always um, maneuvering and talking to people and and doing dirty dealings with the um, with his backroom yeah. bartender friends. You, you're familiar with my dirty dealings. Oh, you're, yes. you're a shady man, <laughs> Robbie Rossell. A shady man. Okay, so <laughs> let's pivot. Pivot. So let's pivot. So, Eric, for our listeners who might not be aware, can you summarize Rope in a couple of sentences? What is the story of Rope? Rope is about... Um, uh, <laughs> Rope is about a, um, a homosexual couple, Brandon Shaw and... Uh, uh, Brandon, um, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Um, they are lovers who live in a one-bedroom penthouse in Manhattan. And for the thrill of it, to prove their superiority over the rest of mankind, they strangle one of their old school chums and then place him in a trunk. And then they host a party um, that includes uh, on the guest list members of the Dead Boys family. And they lay out the buffet of food on top of the trunk that the corpse is in, that the corpse is in, and therefore they serve dinner from his grave. And it's all about the two of them sitting back and watching the worry and concern escalate because where is David? David's the dead guy in the trunk and he's expected and he's not there and his father's waiting and his girlfriend's waiting and everyone's waiting and where is David? And David's quite dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been in the room the entire time. <laughs> 
amazing. And we should we should say that Hitchcock um, filmed this to look as if it all was one long shot, because um, it, it takes place in real time, um, and it's supposed to look like it's all one long take. And there's about, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, yes, Eric, please. Uh, there are two jump cuts in it that yep. are extremely effective. Um, one of them is when Brandon is telling the story of um, of his boyfriend Philip's chicken strangling addiction, and um, Philip becomes very angry. A hoss like ho- like the hostility is is flowing, and um, and the camera jump cuts to Jimmy Stewart's face as he observes this and and recognizes that. The, the tension is unusual and strange. Um, there are two jump cuts like that in the film and the rest of them are edited together to create a seamless flow of the camera following the actors around the apartment. And, and this movie was originally based on a play, correct? It was, yeah. it was a British mm-hmm. play and then, yeah. 1929, yeah. Patrick Hamilton. Um, on, on the West End, it was called Rope and then on Broadway, it was called Rope's End. Um, and, um, and the thing about it is that Brandon and Philip were very much displayed as a homosexual couple in, um, in the play. It was not a hidden subtextual thing. It was very much in the foreground. Uh, and, lo- and loosely based on uh, Leopold and Loeb, correct? Well, that's the whole thing. Like to understand rope, you kind of have to understand Leopold and Loeb, and and the history behind that, which is really, which is really remarkable because the uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard or Dicky Loeb um, were both from extremely prominent families in Chicago, and they were familiar with each, with each other growing up, growing up. And then in sometime in 1920, they began to hang out with each other more and more. And then by the time they were students at uh, the University of Chicago, they had become, um, they had become lovers and they shared a deep affection for true crime stories. Mm. And Nathan was obsessed with Friedrich Nietzsche's, idea of the ubermenschen or the superman and um he drew dicky into the idea that the two of them were extraordinary human beings with superior intellect intellects who were um who were above common laws meant for inferiors mm. um nathan and dicky came to believe that they were supermen and had no connection to the ethics and moral boundaries of normal society. And so ultimately combining their perceived superiority with their love of crimes and mystery, they devised what they thought would be the perfect murder. And they were obsessed with the idea of the thrill of killing somebody for the hell of it. Mm. And, um, and then observing the authorities as they scrambled about trying to figure out who done it? And um, I think it's really interesting to point out that Nathan was 19 and Dickie was 18 when they murdered Bobby Franks on May 14th, 1924. And Bobby Franks was 14 years old and he was uh, Dickie's second cousin. 
so oh. he was like a family member and um and nathan and and dicky rented a car um and they um <clears throat> they found bobby and offered him a ride home from school bobby accepted and Dicky was hiding in the back seat with a chisel and beat the shit out of him with the chisel and then pulled Bobby into the back seat with him, gagged him and finished the job. And then Dicky and Nathan drove like 25 miles outside of Chicago into Indiana and they stripped Bobby naked, dumped him in a culvert. And to make Bobby difficult to identify, they poured hydrochloric acid on his face and genitals. And the genitals was to disguise, disguise his circumcision and his Judaism, um, just to make it all the more complicated to, to figure out who the fuck he was. And so word spread fast that Bobby was missing. Nathan called Bobby's mother, called himself George Johnson, and told her that a ransom note would be coming soon. And so that night, the boys mailed a typed ransom note and then spent the rest of the evening playing cards. And then long story short, too late, the police launched an exhaustive investigation. Dickie laid low, but Nathan would talk to the press and anyone who would listen to him. Um, about the theories, about his theories of what had happened to Bobby Franks. And he also had the audacity to say to a detective, if I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch like Bobby Franks. And it's, I mean, they, it's, 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 it's mind boggling. But the thing is, is throughout all of this, Nathan had lost his glasses and he had no idea where. And the police found them near the body and traced them back to Nathan due to an unusual hinge purchased by just three people in the Chicago area, one of them obviously being Nathan. And the boys were ordered in for questioning on May 29th, and it was downhill from there. It only took the authorities two weeks to solve their perfect murder. <laughs> That is absolutely fascinating. And we see so many hints of this in Rope, this idea of having that arrogance of I can commit a perfect crime and then wanting to brag about it so you can get validated for that arrogance, yeah. and which is their downfall, which is really the downfall of these two gentlemen. Um, we don't really see, I mean, we see the unraveling in the film of, of, of Jimmy Stewart figuring out how these two gentlemen do it, but we never see the consequences except that lone siren wailing in the distance which is a fabulous effect that you don't see the arrest you just get that impending doom as the movie comes to an end um great wow what a, what a rich interesting history eric um you it's so interesting that the play was so overt in their homosexuality i'm sure it was known at the time that leopold and Loeb were gay lovers that came out in the press i'm assuming and this film right from the get-go has a lot of male intimacy he shoots them in very intimate close-ups with or, or two shots i should say with the two of them nose to nose what was the reaction to um to having gay characters on the screen although the word gay is never once mentioned oh gay was referred to as it it and, the it um when hitchcock discovered the play he loved the play and he brought it to hume cronin to write a film treatment for it. Um, and this was Hollywood in the 1940s, so what to do? Bring in Arthur Lorenz to write the screenplay, of course. 
and, and okay, so an important note about Hume Cronin for yes. your listeners is that he was married to Jessica T- Tandy, who was the very first Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. She started in on Broadway, appeared in Hitchcock's The Birds, and then eventually became Driving Miss Daisy. And do I need to talk about who Arthur Lorenz is? You I know mean, what? M- mention him, please, for our for some of our listeners who might not be so musical theater inclined. Uh, probably his most famous artistic project would have been Gypsy, which he wrote the book for and directed primarily every major production of it, except for the Bernadette Peters, which said the original production. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Angela Lansbury, Tyne Daly. And uh, Patty Lapone, mm-hmm. Arthur directed. Um, Sam Mendes had the audacity to direct Bernadette, who whose performance I thought was actually rather fantastic because it Agreed. was different. It was a different version. All of Arthur Lorenz uh, roses are so angry and so loud. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give a strong disagree with you because I saw Bernie, but I also saw her standby Maureen Moore, who was sensational in that production and so it burned it just didn't work for me and that's okay good for marissa that's what i want to say right here on the pod you're welcome <laughs> put it on the record folks sorry bernie if you're listening <laughs> he um, but, me. but arthur lorenz like wrote and directed anyone can whistle with sondheim um he and, uh, do my hero waltz west side story um he's immortal he's immortal in the musical theater um echelon and but he also it, wrote the way we were uh for film in summertime um he's yeah uh, and directed lacage and the turning point if anyone remembers oh, yeah. the film the turning oh. point which i really well, like with Anne of Bancroft. course we remember yes <laughs> yes that's an important film that, I, da- I dated a ballet dancer for a year, and that was his favorite movie in the world. We should have, we'll do a double feature, Red Shoes Turning Point, one, right. for one of these episodes. I don't give a shit <laughs> so about I'm the so- Red Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, Eric, continue on, please, about Arthur Lorenz and, and, and his involvement on this project. Um, well, Rope was clearly about a gay couple, but homosexuality was never explicitly mentioned by Hitchcock or anyone at Warner Brothers where it was filmed, homosexuality was referred to as it. As Arthur said, they were going to do a picture about it and the actors were it. And there was never any question of what Brandon and Philip are, it was understood. And many people in the arts today would enjoy learning, excuse me, that John Dahl and Farley Granger who played them were gay and bisexual respectively. They were it. And Farley Granger was Arthur's lover. Um, and in the 60s, Farley Granger began a rest of his life uh, relationship with not Arthur Lorenz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but it was a man, but it was a man. Um, but there was this thing called the Legion of Decency that was united with the Catholic Church, and they had censors. Um, our watchdogs, bulldogs, to make mm-hmm. sure movies were on the up and up. And there were rules like um, Arthur Lorenz like cited one that I, I find so fascinating. If a man and a woman are on a bed together, um, one of them must have their feet on the ground. And it's just that simple. There were just all of these 
very nitpicky that you know husband and wife could not share a bed if they were sitting on the same bed someone had to have their feet on the ground um so there were all of these um crossfires that they had to kind of dodge and duck and and figure out a way to make a film about it without getting caught and was that all part of the Hayes code yeah that was uh, that was a um an extension of it um and so arthur took a pass at the screenplay then Sidney Bernstein, one of the film's producers, took it and filled in some of the dialogue with lines taken directly from the play. The play was British. So there were all these dear boys and my dear boys, uh, lines that were suddenly in the script. So they brought Arthur back to remove any obvious homosexuality. Um, now, okay, so what's really interesting about the Jimmy Stewart character is that Hitchcock originally wanted Cary Grant Cary Grant did not want to be affiliated with it. Montgomery Cliff was also desired to play one of the boys. Montgomery Cliff, who was also it, did not want to be affiliated with it. And um, so they ended up bringing in Jimmy Stewart for the role of Rupert Cadell, the teacher who discovers the murderer, who was the... Um, um, the uh, the person that the boys looked up to at school the one who the one who taught them about Nietzsche's Superman yeah. the one who put all of these ideas into their head um and part of the original subtext was that Rupert had had an affair with one or both of them and so there was originally meant to be this extraordinary sexual tension between the three of them but when they brought Jimmy Stewart into the role, any sense of sexuality vanished from it because he was Jimmy Stewart. He was Bedford Falls. He was best friends with an invisible rabbit. <laughs> so the sexual tension between Rupert Brandon and Philip was not there. And I honestly think that had it been there, that would have truly elevated rope into the uppermost levels of queer cinema but without that element we are left with the relationship with brandon and philip which to be honest is more than enough for me because mm. they are they take the cake <laughs> <laughs> you, was, oh. go ahead no please go ahead please go ahead i was gonna say do you think that Hitch, uh, Alfred Hitchcock would have made, I call him Hitch like he's a good friend. Um, <laughs> like I call Sondheim Steve. It's just, but do you think um, Hitch would have, would have made an overtly gay film? Oh, had he been able to? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, as Arthur Lorenz put it, there's, there are a lot of great quotes about about this film from Arthur. There's so, an excellent like, documentary. There, there really is. And, um, and there are lots of fascinating articles about it. But one of the things that is pointed out is Hitchcock wasn't interested in the characters because they were murderers. And he wasn't interested in the characters because they were gay. He was interested in the characters because they were gay murderers. And Hitchcock had already had been building a legacy of celebrated homosexual characters long before Rope even existed. So and take us through those. 
Well, when you look at the Lady Vanishes, um, two of the prominent um, secondary characters are clearly a homosexual couple named Charters and Caldecott. And they are, um, they, we see them sharing a bed in a, a hotel room, in a lodge. Um, they are always together. They are inseparable. They are very much an old married couple. Um, They're depicted only in positive light. Um, and that was like in an era where, oh, there's so many people sleeping at this lodge tonight. There are only so many rooms that, well, I guess they would have to sleep together in the same bed so they get away with it with that kind of mentality. But they would have slept in the same bed anyway. Hmm. And um, and so what is, what is really fascinating about the two of them is that they're, they're funny, they're dry, they're very British, they're gentlemen, um, they're very distinguished, and they are queer as a $3 bill. And, and their queerness is not ever the point. And that is why I think it's so important now, when we jump ahead to Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers, Mrs. Danvers' lesbianism is, is rather a fruitful element of that film because it explains her utter obsession with this dead woman and how she is completely unable to let the memory of her go oh, yeah, uh, because yeah, yeah. she was madly in love with her. Please, do you see this brush? Yeah. Yes. Right. Well, do you see? Do you see this lingerie? You can see my hand through it. Yeah. Right. Because that means that when Rebecca put it on, her titties would, you know, show for. <laughs> and Judith Anderson, she's horny. Yeah. What a gift. She was a gift. She was a gift. <laughs> a, a gift, not a gift, right, Robbie? She probably could be both, a gift. Actually, she could yeah. be both. She's she probably a few be. gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, so then that so that takes us up to rope. Is that right in the terms of the transition of his queer characters? Yeah, we've got we've got rope and 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 like I said before, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan live in a one bedroom penthouse apartment in Manhattan. A party guest, one of the party guests who comes to <laughs> unknowingly celebrate the death of their friend David, um, asked to use the phone. They're told. It's in the bedroom. In the bedroom. Mm. Oh, yeah. Single. Um, after the party, the Brandon and Philip are going to, on a trip to Brandon's mother's house to isolate Philip so he can prepare for his piano recital at Town Hall. Now, why would Brandon be taking Philip to his mother's house? And why couldn't Philip go off by himself to rehearse? And does Brandon's mother know? Because everyone at the party seems to know. Everyone at the party just doesn't talk about it. It's simply accepted. And, and considering the success of the murder and the following party, Brandon announces to Philip that the two of them deserve a holiday together <laughs> after, Brandon's ho um, after Brandon's concert. We, we really deserve a holiday. We should go to, it is just not hidden. And, and then we have like lots of fun things. Like after the murder, 
um, during the murder. The curtains are drawn, the lights are out. We hear David scream through the windows and then we cut inside and he's been strangled to death and the scream is like a final orgasm. And then we have Philip and Brandon opening the trunk, putting him in the trunk. As soon as they get the, the um, trunk closed, they both like lean over into each other post uh, like post coital mm -hmm. just like they had finished having huge whopping orgasms and and then after that goes on for a few beats brandon stands up pulls out a cigarette and lights it like you would after a good fuck moments later the two of them are talking about how it did it feel to murder david and as they're talking about it you really get the impression that they're about to throw down and fuck on the dining room table. It's, it's just there. <laughs> and Eric, do you, do you happen to know offhand if that when they were in the middle of shooting the film, if any of the actors said, boy, you know, this is too much, I'm uncomfortable. Or if they said, no, we want to, we want to, uh, underline this idea even more. Do you know what that was like? Or if any studio executives were on set going, what, what the fuck is this? Everyone called it it. Everyone knew it was a movie about it. Um, no one talked about it beyond it. And the actors were too busy trying not to trip over cables for cameras. <laughs> because right. that Talk was about that. That was a film that was all about the gimmick of the one trailing shot that followed actors around back and forth throughout this apartment for 80 minutes for the most part, um, except for those, those two couple of jump cuts. And so in order to accomplish that, there was shit all over the floor that the actors were constantly having to step over and pretend like they weren't there. So like whatever um, importance that I'm sure um, a lot of them, like, especially like John Dahl and Far Farley Granger, I'm sure that there must have been like an element of, oh, shit, I hope we don't get caught. But at the same time, I can't believe we're getting away with this in 1948. 1948. But, um, you know, don't trip on the cord. <laughs> is the, of course, it's the priority. What was the critical reception uh, and the audience reception to its original premiere? Um, it was pretty lukewarm. The audiences knew it was about it. And homosexuality um, in 1948 was um, a was was something that people were pretending didn't exist. And so you have this major Hollywood motion picture that truly gets away with everything it gets away with and makes it very clear that these are lovers. This is just not, this is not up for debate. Um, and um, I think that the film treats homosexuality like it's the most natural thing in the world. Um, because of the censorship at the time, because they had to, quote, hide it, Brandon and Philip were simply presented as a couple who lived together, did everything together, murdered together, threw parties together. They even have a maid, for God's sake. 
And the not speaking of them being gay made their relationship natural. When you're with a gay couple, do you talk about them being a gay couple? Is their gayness part of the conversation when you go to their parties? Is their gayness part of the conversation when you have dinner with them? Is their gayness an issue? No, it's just, it simply is. It is. And that's what the censors did for Rope. It, because of their barriers, they made it gayer than Christmas. Was there any, um, you know, the idea that it's, it's overtly it and the two people that are it end up taking a human life for no reason whatsoever. Does that feed into the stereotype at the time of, you see, if you're it, it's dangerous, which is well, something we've talked about before on this podcast that a lot of the early images of queer individuals is not always in the best or optimistic of light. Right. I, was ho- I was hoping that you would ask me something like that because I've got a big fat answer for you. I love a big fat answer. Uh, see, he's a longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> he knows. Um, there's a lot of talk of homosexuals being villainized and depicted in a way that tells the general public they are degenerates. And yes, this has happened in film and television. It's, it's, it's a real thing. And I'm not going to deny that. Happens with straight characters too. Lots and lots of straight villains. And cinema has grown up quite a bit. As society's mentality continues to grow, cinema reflects that. But Brandon and Philip in 1948 were not degenerates. They were a wealthy, respected couple who spend the entire film looking glamorous in gorgeous suits. Gorgeous suits they are perfectly composed perfectly manicured they would own hell's kitchen simply own it and that's what makes rope so interesting the leak the least likely murderers are the murderers and they are simply people who happen to be gay and the character and and the people that they are based on were gay this is fact this is reality this is a, a fictionalized version of a real thing. Leopold and Loeb were fags and they fucked and they murdered that boy for the fuck of it. Just like Philip and Brandon murdered David for the fuck of it. <laughs> and that was the original New York Times review, ladies and gentlemen, that Eric is quoting. And the movie tagline. And the movie tagline. Yeah. Now, Eric, I, as I understand it, uh, Rope disappeared for about 20 or 30 years. Is that correct? With a bunch of other... Hitchcock films? I think that they just kind of went into a vault and there was a, um, uh, I, I could be completely wrong about this, but if I'm remembering correctly, there was some sort of dispute over who the fuck owned them. Yeah. And this included um, all the Paramount films. So that's Rear Window and The Birds and Marnie. I mean, no, no, uh, that's Rear Window and Psycho and... Um, to Catch a Thief, and um, just a whole crutch of films, because Hitchcock kind of danced around studios. But, uh, but like, they call it the Masterpiece Collection. And those are the, the ropes, Shadow of a Doubt. Um, the box that I have. Yeah. Yeah, the, the beautiful. Box set. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that 
there must have been some kind of confusion or decision making that that needed to come into effect as to who owned them or who was going to own them before they were finally made available but yeah they did disappear for quite some time psycho would pop up on television a lot um as i understand it i, I wasn't around during that era but um uh, it would pop up you know severely edited mm-hmm. um but as far as rope I, I i honestly wouldn't be able to tell you the last time that anyone was able to to see rope uh between 1948 and 1989 and just so i'm clear when we say disappeared i mean there's no vhs really at this time there's no laser sure. disc at this time and it's not playing in revival houses which was where how most or on television which is how most people were seeing these films at this time so so much of his great work is just hopefully you had seen it the first time around otherwise you're not getting a second chance at it well that's why that that renaissance in the uh, late 80s was so important uh because suddenly all of these movies were available um on vhs and um unfortunately they were you know cropped and they weren't in their proper widescreen but the, it, it was something but we got vertigo we've got um uh like i mean some of the greatest movies ever made were directed by alfred hitchcock like and that's just a hands down fact as far as like we're we're beyond opinion with that that's just something that i think that the majority of the world agrees with um and everything art is subjective but hitchcock is not and that's my world um (laughs) but uh but without that renaissance i wouldn't have known about these movies i wouldn't sure, have sure i wouldn't have stumbled upon them at walmart they were like at walmart and then on top of that while that was happening um lesser video distributors like good times home video were putting out blackmail and secret agent and the man who knew too the original 1934 man who knew too much and all of the British films were the 39 steps. They were suddenly available for like $5. And uh, so like, you know, the collection just grew and grew and grew. There are, you know, 53 films. And have you seen all 53? Yes. Good for I, you. Uh, they're all over there. <laughs> now, for, for our listeners who, who obviously cannot see Eric, uh, there's a huge Carrie poster on the wall. There's a Frankenstein poster on the wall. You're obviously a big horror thriller individual. So what makes Rope such a successful screenplay in the thriller genre? Well, I think what the play did and what Arthur Lawrence wanted to do uh, in following the play was to not show the murder and to have the audience not truly be aware of whether or not there was a body in the trunk. Um, And that was the conceit of the play. And Arthur Miller really, really got off on that. Hitchcock demanded that the murder be shown because with the knowledge of, it's like his uh, ticking time bomb Mm -hmm. um, theory. If you show the audience the time bomb, and you tell them that it's going to go off in 20 minutes, then they're going to be sitting in 20 minutes of hell waiting for that bomb to go off because they know it's going to go off. And 
it's the the same kind of aspect here where we know that David's in the trunk. We know that at any moment, somebody could go over to that trunk and open it and see David's corpse. And there is a, a masterful way, at least for me, where even though what Philip and Brandon do is a horrible, evil thing, you are rooting for them to get away with it. You spend the entire, like when, when James Stewart starts to catch on, and when he definitely catches on, when he discovers um, David Kentley's hat in the closet, and he knows for a fact David Kentley was there that day, and Brandon and Philip had been in complete denial of, oh, well, uh, we haven't seen him, and we haven't talked to him, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I'm not on James Stewart's side. Mm. I'm on their side. They're the people I've been following throughout the film. I find it actually rather um, unfair that James Stewart's name is above the title when it should be Farley Granger and John Dahl. It's their film. Yeah. Um, oh, sure, but James Stewart was the star. So, well, of course, he's... A but they could have put all three of them on top mm -hmm. of it. Oh, I agree with that for sure. When you were talking about the ticking time bomb, it just reminds me of the scene where the maid is yes. bringing, uh, like, clearing. Oh, the, the one shot. Great yeah, shot. The, uh, the clearing the the uh, the banquet away that's on top of this trunk uh, to put all these books back in it, and it's slow, and she they're taking their time, but you just see her back and forth, back and forth, while you're listening to them talk. And you just sort of out of frame see uh, James Stewart actually. You see um, like their their the coattails of their jackets. You can barely yeah, you see like the, see the back of his head while the maid goes back and forth and back and forth dealing with this trunk. Edith Evanson is the maid, and she is fabulous, wonderful. She is she is absolutely fabulous. She's everything Rob Schneider loves in a. An old woman. I really do. I do. Oh my gosh, do I love her. Rob Schneider says, beat the character actress you wish to see in the world. And I understand. <laughs> oh, I love Mrs. Atwater. Oh God, she's wonderful. Mrs. Constance Atwater Collier. is also good. Ah, and her teeth. She does teeth acting like nobody I've ever seen. <laughs> because everything is just like teeth forward and the smile is like, permanently glued to the top teeth. It's wonderful. I've had the most horrible time getting into that new musical. <laughs> what was it? The something of the thing? Of the something? With just playing someone. <laughs> it's it's an incredible supporting cast. An incredible mm -hmm. supporting cast. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I, it would be nice if all three of them were above the title in some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I originally if it was like you know Dahl and Granger and then Jimmy Stewart well, underneath would be lovely. But well, if like we were we dealing get. with it, if we were dealing with it in a film today, it would be at the end of the um, at the at the end of the actor list. It would be and James Stewart. Yes. Yeah. Now he said in an interview that this was the only movie of his, I think the only Hitchcock movie of his that he would not want to do again, that he would not want to participate in again. Um, and I don't think that audiences liked seeing him in this kind of role because this is the only time I've seen a lot of Jimmy Stewart's films and Jimmy Stewart is always the perfect boy scout. This is the only time that Jimmy Stewart had any real edge. And 
you know, I, you know, you listened, you listened to like the other names that could have been playing that role and the angle it could have added to it. I will say, I think he's quite good in this film. Jimmy Stewart. I think oh, yeah. he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a wonderful role. And it's, and you're right. It's nice to see him like act, act. Yeah, no, it's a complete, fully rounded character and performance that he totally commits to. And it is unlike anything I've ever seen of his before or since. And what I love is, is, you know, a lot of actors, I think, would probably play the realization of what these two men have done very early on. But you watch him. It's this slow dawning and this hope throughout the whole thing. I hope I'm wrong. As the evidence mounts up, you just see it in his eyes. I know what's happening and I hope it's not happening. But there's also those little glints of, ooh, what if I'm right? Yes, exactly. Right. They're they're there, the little twinkles. Yeah, and it's not and and the scene when he gets the hat, when he gets the wrong hat is just a masterclass in acting. So, I know he was disappointed in it, but I don't know, but you're right, it's probably the audience getting angry at him going, I, "Why'd you I, do that?" I honestly think that if the audience reception for the film had been, "This is the finest James Stewart performance that we have ever seen," he would be singing a different tune. And I'm, I'm not really sure how well I didn't know Jimmy Stewart, so I can't really speak <laughs> for him. But I, 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 I don't know if he was the kind of actor who was able to separate the work from the response to the work. Sure. And oh. so it could very well be that if the work received accolades, then he had nothing but good things to say about it. If it didn't, then he was like, oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I mean, at that time... The, the work that he was doing in that time was mostly comedy. He had won the Academy Award for the Philadelphia Story and been nominated for Wonderful Life and for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So it's so against what he normally does. He um, comes in and he's so pessimistic mm-hmm. and he has such a negative view of humankind. It's Had a throat t- week. You know, and it's the total antithesis of, you know, George Bailey, I want to live, you know, running down. <laughs> so I can imagine an audience is like, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah. Where, where's Jimmy Stewart? It's sort of like Fred McMurray in The Apartment, who, uh, a- after he played The Apartment, um, a woman came up to him at Disneyland. It's like, are you Fred McMurray? And he said, yes. And she hit him with her purse. And she said, I love all your family films. And you made me go see that. Shame on you. And he was so mortified that an audience felt that way towards him. He never again, after The Apartment, made a film that cast him anything but the Fred McMurray patriarchal type. Uh, that's wild. I that's didn't too know bad that. because we got yeah. Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity. He was brilliant in Double he Indemnity. He was a sexy bad and guy. Sexy and sexy. This, I believe, was the first of his Hitchcock films. Am I right? Jimmy Stewart? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Because he did a number of them through the years. Actually, not that much. Um, Vertigo was. Uh, he did Rear Rope. Window. He did Rear Window. He did The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo. And that was it. I mean, that's but hitchcock i think really not brought... oh, sorry, one film you know what i mean like he did a number of them through the years so it's just interesting that if this if if he didn't take to cotton to this film for whatever reason it's interesting that he still went back to the well that's what I'm well it's it really goes to um i don't know as far as like testimonials for alfred hitchcock and the um the very dire way that that Tippi Hedren has painted him, Oof. 
and how many people who were on those film sets and many people who were witnesses to what she alleges have said these things did not happen or they did not happen anything like the way mm. that she is proclaiming them to happen. Um, now, I wasn't there and I was never alone with the two of them when they were alone. I don't know what that was, but Ingrid Bergman flat out said, Ingrid Bergman loved him. Janet Lee loved him. Grace Kelly begged Prince Ranye to let her go back to Hollywood to make Marnie, begged him and he wouldn't have let her do it. Marnie was not for Tippy. It was for fucking Grace. Mm -hmm. And um, the only reason that Tippy got it was because Grace would not be freed from her duties as princess to return to Hollywood. And, and we know that all of her films were banned from Monaco. Oh. Um, Wait, I, did, I didn't know that. Her, her films were banned from Monaco? Oh yeah, it was, it was, they never happened. I never knew that. I never knew that. Yeah, See, Eric, was, I think I think you have a calling to host a Hitchcock podcast. <laughs> this is the backdoor pilot for Honestly, Eric's Hitchcock podcast. This is podcast. the empty nest to our <laughs> Golden Girls. <laughs> so, Eric, we we ask everyone that that comes on the show, which is, you know, why is this movie <laughs> important? for keeping your gay card why why must people see this movie which is over what 60 years old now at this point seven 1948 years old? so oh god 72 yeah 72 70, 72 years old why'd um, you look at me when you said 72 <laughs> i don't like that i know quarantine's been hard and all um I don't know. I think one, I think that Leopold and Loeb are, are, are an important case to examine um, in, in queer history because of exactly what I said before. These were uh, upstanding young men who uh, came from prominent families who um, everyone adored and, and respected and they were not supposed to be what they were. And, and, and I mean, that comes down to everything. They were not supposed to be lovers. They were not supposed to be murderers. And yet the reality is the facts are that yes, they were. And you can come at me for villainizing gay people all you want, but facts are facts. And the... The, th the thing about Leopold and Loeb is that Rope isn't the only adaptation of it. We've got 1959's Compulsion with um, Orson Welles, and that depicts um, Leopold and Loeb as crazy friends. And then we've got 1992's Swoon, mm. which is actually quite good. It's quite a good film, and it's very honest. Um, visiting of the Leopold and Loeb story, but all the gay stuff is just out there. And there's no thrill of the mystery of it that Rope has. Um, it's not simply understood and accepted like it is in Rope. And I honestly think that the uh, closest thing that we've come to it in modern cinema is 2002's Murder by Numbers. 
And uh, that film strongly insinuates that Ryan Gosling and Michael Pitt are sexually involved, but it doesn't make it the point. Gotcha. Um, and I think that the reason why Rope is so significant is because they are gay, but their being gay has nothing to do with them wanting to kill somebody. It has nothing to do with it. It's their sexuality. Like, I, I honestly think that had Leopold and Loeb met and not been sexually attracted to each other, they still would have been attracted to the same things yeah. and the same ideologies and more than likely would still have followed through with what they followed through with, which would have led the gate open for art such as rope to occur. Um, you could sit back and you could look at rope um, with blinders on and just consider them to be really good friends. It makes no sense to look at it that way, but you could. A lot of people do. I've been in Hitchcock groups where I've tried to discuss the, the homosexuality of Brandon and Philip, and people fly off the handle. They have flown into a rage. How dare I try to contaminate this classic film with my gay agenda? And I'm like, the author of the film is on record that they're gay. Like, it's not a mystery. It's, it's, it's not a mystery to be solved. It is a fact, it is real, and it is there. And all you have to do is pay attention. Um, but I, there's, there's a play that, I, that I've written called Pangea, and three of the four characters are gay. And their sexuality is not a dramatic device. Their sexuality is not the reason for their existence on this earth. And that is what I think is one of the most important things about it, because their sexuality simply is. Mm. And in 1948, we have a Hollywood film that depicts a homosexual couple whose sexuality simply is in a one-bedroom apartment, one-bedroom penthouse in Manhattan in the late 40s. This is unheard of. And they got away with it. I think that's testament enough. <laughs> Eric's passionate defense of rope is reason enough for you to, to see it, although you should have seen it if, you, if you're listening to our podcast. Now, Eric, we, we have a little game. That, okay. we that we like to play. Oh, with, I'm going to like, be terrible. We terrible. love to play. With, our, with our guests. Um, and we're going to give you various quotes from the film. And you oh. need to fill in the blank. Robbie, do you want to go first or shall I? I would love to. I would, in fact, die to go first. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, here we go. Take Killer it away. Pun. Of course, he was a blank undergraduate. That might be grounds for justifiable, justifiable homicide. Wow. Can't talk. Great. It's okay. He's been drinking. He's fine. Don't worry. One more time. <laughs> Champagne. Um, <laughs> of, of course, he was a blank undergraduate. That might be grounds for justifiable homicide. Harvard. Correct. So good. One for one. Okay. Here we go. This is Philip speaking. I never blanked a chicken in my life. Uh, strangled. 
Very good. Two for two. Take it away, Robbie. The power to kill could be just as satisfying as the power to blank. Create. Yep. Great. Okay. It's Jimmy Stewart here, so here we go. Please do. It's going to be bad, but here we go. It's not what I'm going to do, Brandon. It's what society is going to do. I don't know what that will be, but I can guess and I can help. You're going to blank, Brandon. Both of you. You're going to blank. Hang. So close. So very close. Oh, oh die. You're, You're going to die. die, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very, we'll give it to you anyway. That was very good. Yeah. And Robbie, last one for our lovely guest. This is the movie's tagline. It begins with a shriek. It ends with a blank. Oh, my God. Was that a good movie? Not so- in a world. Can you do, yeah, think, do, yeah. In a world. Go for it. It begins, it begins with, a sh- with a shriek. It, it ends, ends with a... It ends with a dinner party. I- <laughs> in this movie, Jimmy Stewart is not queer. <laughs> it ends with a shot. Oh! It's a great tagline. Yeah, it is. It is. Eric, I cannot tell you, we both cannot tell you how much we appreciate you so much coming on and discussing Rope. This, you well, are... I, can, I can tell you that I am honored to be, to be sitting where Charles Bush has sat. And <laughs> I'm, even, I'm even more pleased to be sitting where Claiborne Elder has sat. <laughs> we all are. I think we all are. Honestly. <laughs> Eric, tell everybody where, where they can find you and your, more about your work. Um, really, the the most thorough examination that one could uh, pursue about me would be my website, which is um, ericchampney.com. That's E-R-I-K-C-H-A-M-P-N-E-Y.com. That's champney.com. Um, everything that you need to know about me is there. Love it. Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's it's a one-stop shop for everything about you. It's it's pretty overloaded. It might be it might be too thorough, but you know, if you're looking for anything, it's there. <laughs> you know what, Eric? I'm so sorry we didn't ask you this. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, a lot of family from Lake Charles. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I lived in um, Shreveport. I lived in Seattle. I lived in Singapore, and now I live here. Well. And here's your I didn't favorite. I did think to right? ask him because I've just known him for so uh, no, long. No, I, I forgot to ask too. I'm so sorry. Okay. So wonderful. So we'll go to the website. We'll make sure that it's posted for everybody to see. Eric, thank you so much for being here and, and walking us through this amazing exploration of rope. Now Truly. I want to go watch it again, even though I watched it again yesterday. Robbie. Don't you feel like you got like a great director commentary on like I a did. DVD commentary? Not a director uh, commentary, but a DVD I, Eric, commentary. You sh- you should do your own Hitchcock podcast. We'll produce it. The Hitchcast. I just volunteered. The Hitchcast. The Robbie, Hitchcast. Robbie, Bang. do the logo. We'll send it to you tomorrow. And on Monday, we expect the first episode. Oh, Thanks, Eric can Eric. do his Have own logo. Weekend. He's very good at it. Oh, really? Um, Great. <laughs> Amazing. Robbie, what is everyone supposed to be listening to for our next episode? <sighs> Strap in because we're going to do the double disc Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall album. Ah! I know it can't. Honestly, it's a pride parade. That entire album is you could cancel June because I, that album exists. I think my testicles just exploded. You're welcome. Honestly. Um, so go listen to the album. It's on Spotify. It's a damn fucking joy. And uh, we're going to dissect it uh, in the next episode. 
Like us, rate us, review us on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Follow us at G Revoked. And, um, and we'll see you real soon with some Judy Garland. I'm Robbie Roselle. I'm Rob Schneider. And uh, we'll see you real soon. Stay safe. Take care.